0: Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Jessica Minahan. Hi, Jessica. Are you there? Hi, Amanda. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm so excited that it worked out the second time. (laughs) Yes. Here we are. Here we are. Um, Would you please start us off by giving a brief introduction or a bio of yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Jessica Minahan. I'm a behavior analyst in the Boston, Massachusetts area. And I was in public schools for a combined 13 years um, as a behavior analyst. And now I travel mostly in this country, but also internationally, um, Europe and, and Philippines coming up and Canada. Um, Working with schools, training teachers, my area of interest is the idea and understanding more how anxiety and also trauma impacts behavior in school-age kids and how, as behavior analysts, we can support behavior change while being trauma-informed and anxiety-informed. So that's what I do most weeks. Thanks, Jessica. Um,
0: I know that we met now over a decade ago, Um, I think working in Cambridge Public Schools. How did you transition or what was your background that led to you to working in public schools? And 13 years is um, quite impressive. Do you mind elaborating a little bit on some of your experiences there?
1: Sure. Well, when I started, because it was such a long time ago, right around 2000, I Inclusion was new, and I know in different parts of the country it's also, um, you know, just starting at different levels. But in Massachusetts, inclusion has been around for a while. But when I started, I was a inclusion specialist um, at, while I was getting my BCBA coursework under my belt. And my job was to support the inclusion of students with special uh, needs in gen ed settings. Back then, kids. Um with learning disabilities, kids with autism were very new for gen ed teachers. They weren't sure how to go about working with them. I would say what's happened in New England specifically at this point in my career is teachers are much more familiar with working with kids with learning disabilities and they have pretty good differentiated lessons around that or at least used to hearing about that. Kids with autism are getting better and better, but I think the area, the group of children that all schools are still struggling with, are kids with mental health issues. And when mental mental health is fueling the behavior, I think it gets a little more complicated, less, even less intuitive than um, other populations of kids. And so I've always been drawn to that group because they're prone to crisis um, and if things can uh, escalate quickly, um, and also not, especially historically, a lot of people were um, thinking about how to incorporate behavior analytic principles with kids, with all these internal um, private events like anxiety and so forth. So it's just um, always been intellectually uh stimulating to me to work with this group my heart goes to that group I for some reason love kids with extremely oppositional behavior for some reason the more FUs the better for me even as a when I started out as a teacher I had a classroom of kids with um and back then they called it violent behavior disorders VBD which is not even really a thing <laughs> at this point um and I don't even know if it was then but that's what they called them So that's how I kind of started, and I have always had a soft spot for kids who are misunderstood, um, who uh, maybe not everyone has the intuition um, of how to de-escalate. And so that's what I've been spending roughly 18 years doing. Wow.
0: Um, Yeah, I kind of forgot about even the the diversity in the positions in public schools in Massachusetts i mean inclusion specialists we had inclusion specialists we had um behavior specialists and behavior analysts and then a lot of different um populations to serve i know for me that's where i first encountered populations beyond autism was in the public school setting mm-hmm. and you know behavior analytic principles yes can be applied to many different situations many different populations but I also think that you already touched on something really critical here, which is that you know not everyone has who are behavior analysts have taken um, that lens to looking at this population, and then not everything that kind of works in our histories with other populations are going to necessarily generalize. So, can you talk about some of those? What a behavior analytic viewpoint to something like these sometimes private events uh, could look like? And then also maybe what are some differences in approach for this population?
1: Sure. So I I had that struggle because I was a teacher of kids with social emotional issues, you know, like I said, right away. And then I was an inclusion specialist. So I've always been in public school. So I've always worked with um, a variety of kids and, and, like I said, drawn to kids with um, this mental health aspect. So I had to... When I became a BCBA, I had to go outside of the behavior analytic literature at that time to understand what was going on with children with anxiety and trauma. A lot of the uh, neurological information, neuropsych information, and then on my own try to figure out how that incorpor- we can incorporate that information into a behavior analytic paradigm. So, for example, um, a very common accommodation we use in school is breaks, so frequent movement breaks. And I think this is, when I talk around the country, everyone can sort of relate to that, that um, that's one of the first things on an IEP is frequent movement breaks. And yet, we, I usually ask my groups of teachers when I'm working around the country, what percentage of those breaks are we actually calming the child, the kid? more self-regulated after or calmer after and the when i have them do electronic polls it's very low usually around 20 percent um maybe 30 percent and so one takeaway is we're not even necessarily asking ourselves are the breaks helpful um it's just an assumption that we're making that the breaks are helpful and with kids with anxiety it gets even more complex than that because for example um, I had a girl who was picking her skin really badly on her forearm and then picking almost all the skin up at the tops of her fingers during class. And the teachers of course were really worried because she's a little bit bleeding. And so I said, well, what are we doing to mitigate things? I And they said, Oh, well, we're giving her a break from work. And we're letting her draw and color because she's an amazing artist. And she says it's really helpful. But while I was watching her, color and draw she was still picking her skin while she was doing that and then she never could re-engage in the activity which I think is a good litmus test and data point to measure did we calm the child so when I interviewed her um, I interviewed her before and then I interviewed her during um, while she was coloring and drawing and I said can you tell me what the thought you just had was (laughs) which was really you know, uh, rustic uh, data taking. And she said she just started spilling. You know, I, I'm i so fat and I, I have this picture on social media and all this stuff started coming out. And so what it made me realize is that um, we needed something incompatible with the flooding of these um, thoughts or private events to calm the child. Um, the other way I figured that out in the FBA is that she – um did not pick her skin when she, the teacher was reading out loud when the teach, when the science teacher played a movie or when she was really into something those were themes of when she was not picking her skin so there was another sort of data point the variable was when her thoughts are engaged she's a little calmer so through doing data you know before and after we changed the breaks to be more um you know, I call them cognitively distracting or a thought break. So that, a cognitive distraction. So she, um, something incompatible with worrying. That's what I was looking for. So we gave her Sudoku, you know, the math game with the little boxes. Um, She would occasionally do like trivia, Star Wars trivia, stuff like that. And we saw a reduction in the picking, except for her right thumb, she sort of still did. And then she could get back to work within 15 to 25 seconds over the next two weeks. I took data after that type of a break. So um, that's an example of using behavior analytic principles to sort of figure out what the best way to calm someone was. And it wasn't intuitive. Letting her draw when she said it was helpful was a super um, good first try, you know, and I could see why people tried that, but um, through the, data analysis process we uh, you know i could figure out that it was actually this private event that needed to be uh terminated or interrupted for her to um get back to work you know i
0: i hear that story and i i think two things right away one is how wonderful that you interviewed the student um and i think that that should be a common default but i remember the first student i interviewed um it was a situation where I was going to make a recommendation and when I asked the student, why are you ripping up your schedule? And he said, because it's in pictures and I can read. I thought, wow, everything else I would have done would have been really um, ineffective. And right. the simplest thing was to just ask the student. However, when we asked the student what calms her, um, you know, she may not be reliable in, in being able to tell that. So I mm-hmm. I when I heard that story that's one thought I had was like it's so great to involve the student to interview to ask those really key questions um but also use our data right and and see if it does increase or decrease like you noticed with some of those other kinds of incompatible tasks
1: um, right. wow and also <laughs> yeah and also she um uh was able to self report so one disadvantage about taking data on thoughts Um, First, you have to operationally define them, which, you know, is tricky, but then um, it really does require a lot of self-reporting. So another way I can take data on anxiety is through technology. So I don't know if you're familiar with M-Wave. It's called, it's spelled E-M-W-A-V-E. I think it's short for emotion wave at one point, but E-M-W-A-V-E, and it's a biofeedback software but it's pretty affordable. So we used it in my uh, last public school district. And um, what it does, it comes in the mail and it can go on your phone, your tablet, wherever. And it comes with a little <clears throat> um, pulsometer. So when do, you go to the data, that little plastic thing they put in your finger to take your blood pressure, it comes with one of those. And it shows you right on the screen how anxious you are, like in a bar graph. So um, red being your heart rate's going way too fast, yellow you're getting calmer green you're nice and calm and it shows you in live time you can like tickle the kid or you know drop a book and you can see the elevation and different things and so um, i first started to use it in public school because for two reasons one i love that it's not person dependent because i made the mistake in public school where i would rescue kids from the classroom Sort of wrap them back up, calm them down, and then put them back in class nice and calm. And so, unfortunately, when you interviewed the kid, they would list me as their strategy. And the teacher used to just call me when the kid got upset. That's what she learned from that process. So, what we did is we got a grant and we put M Wave in all the go to people's offices. So, counselor, school nurse, assistant principal, you know, all of us that have kids who come upset. And we all had the same mantra. When a kid came in, we would say, "Um, I'm so sorry you're upset. Um, I'm here for you. But you got this. And we'd point right to the computer. So we piloted middle school first, and they started to ask for an M-weight break, not me or the, you know. And we were so excited that we could then just put it on a Chromebook and stick it right in the classroom, right? So I have a biology teacher in Colorado who um, introduces it. He, He front loads that. Um, particular biology lesson where they play with, you know, kind of use it as part of the lesson. And then he puts, you know, stickers on three of the Chromebooks and says, by the way, M-Wave will be on these three throughout the year when we're doing group work or independent work. You can grab these if you need so to calm down during class. Um, little kids, you know, we have common corners all the time. And so um it's very common, which is very trauma-informed and, and great. But we, the misstep there is we say go back there and sit down and calm down. And so if the kid's ruminating, um, they often come back in a worse situation. So um, <clears throat> for me, the other way I used M-Wave, since you were bringing that up, because kids can sometimes be unreliable with their self-reporting or to, you know, um, are not very good at sharing or different reasons they're not good at self-reporting, is I used to plug their little finger in and try different break strategies Um even in the classroom, different things, it goes right on the phone. And so I had much confidence saying to the teacher, this really works, because I'm getting this physiological data right there um, while I'm trying things. So, and, um, and that kind of technology is becoming so much more common. Um, MIT near me, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is coming up with a watch where the face of it has biofeedback in it. Still prohib- prohibitively expensive, but the watch face t- changes colors based on your stress level, um, so that would be, you know, super helpful even for like marriages, right? <laughs> or anything. Um, so uh, I think um, I think technology is another place that will is always going to be helpful to behavior analysts in this area.
0: I didn't know about M Wave at all, and so that's exciting, and I'm sure it will be exciting to a lot of people who are who are listening and looking for strategies and data collection. Um, it also makes me think about those like 1980s mood rings, you know, like if
1: they actually exactly, were. <laughs> it's a real one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so someday they're gonna be there's gonna be a real one. Exactly, we can all buy. Um, the kids functions. love it, and it actually <laughs> I learned it from Mass originally from Mass General Hospital up here, they were using it with their Aspire program for kids with high-functioning autism because it's so abstract, teaching calm down, right? That's um, such a hard thing to explain to someone who's that literal or or concrete in thinking. So they, this um, M-Wave Pro, for example, comes with um, activities. So the one I played was a black and white picture of a forest and the longer I I stayed calm, the colors start to pop in. So the leaves turn green, the flowers turn red, the little deer turns brown. When the whole thing's colored, you're now calm. And it's super helpful for kids on the autism spectrum. That's where I first learned of it probably 12 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and then I just started using it with other kids as well. It's also portable. So, you know, I have high school athletes who have performance anxiety. do it right on their phone. Um, but the it also helps. Me with the data taking of these private events when when you may or may not get reliable self reporting, you mentioned cognitive
0: distraction, which is a technique that um I have, uh, have found useful that i that I realize you've coined, and it's something that I include in a lot of of trainings when I'm talking to people and teachers and um principals and looking at sort of school culture when you're when you're consulting or doing your training. How do you start the conversation of um, of whether or not somebody could be feeling anxious or how is this different from somebody who, I mean, we get the similar kinds of things, I think, no matter what population, like they want to do this or they choose to do this or they know better. How do you go about kind of starting the conversation when you're consulting?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And like autism, anxiety, depression and trauma are invisible disabilities as well. So, especially with oppositional or, or externalized behavior. I think we do have more sympathy for, like, the girl who was picking her skin. People weren't saying she's just trying to get attention. They weren't talking like that. But kids who, for sure, are more disruptive or oppositional, um, it's it's a very hard conversation because it looks willful and the assumption is they're choosing not to. So one thing that I always do explain, which I learned from neuropsych literature is that when anxiety goes up, our working memory goes down. And working memory is how you hold information in mind and how you retrieve it as you need it. Um, So it's really crucial for problem solving. It's crucial for almost every academic task, mostly math and testing, but almost everything. Um, It's also crucial for emotional regulation, thought regulation, behavior regulation. And so unfortunately, that's what's impaired when we're anxious. So we can even lose 13 to 20 IQ points in a moment of anxiety. And I think we've all experienced that where you're on an interview and it's going really well, but because you're anxious, they say, what's your zip code? And you cannot remember for the life of you, and it's really embarrassing. Um, So that's what's happening is we can't access um, information, and it it, it impairs retrieval. So this can impact in in tons of different ways, one of which is that there's an inconsistency in the behavior. There's also particular skills included in that working memory sort of fluctuation. So when kids come down, working memory comes back. There are a couple other skills um, that you have to, that are really required for most school behavior and tasks, like self-regulation or accurate thinking, like we were talking about negative thinking being the opposite. Um, perspective taking particularly is impacted when you're anxious. So for example, I don't know if you've ever spilled coffee on your shirt right before work and you have a big coffee stain on your left shoulder, let's say. Walking down the hallway, would you agree anyone glancing in your direction, in your head you overprescribe they notice your coffee stain oh, and, you <laughs> and you overprescribe and you prescribe they're thinking something negative. I always tell teachers and I use a lot of adult examples like that that when you are anxious, you, that's what it distorts your perspective to, it's about me, people have negative intent. So how that would look in the classroom is that kid laughing over there is laughing at me. That's how I'm going to interpret it. And I'm going to make a social mistake based on that. Um, so that leads to a whole bunch of issues, um, school-related issues. Executive functioning and flexible thinking are the other two skills directly impacted when you're anxious. So unfortunately, what happens is that list of skills is going up and down like an elevator. So sometimes kids do great. Um, Sometimes they have no problems in an assembly. And then the next assembly, they have a big outburst. And so, uh, or for example, Monday, they write four gorgeous paragraphs. And Tuesday, they get five words on the piece of paper. So the same child and and the teacher has proof. Look what he did yesterday. He's choosing not to do it today. Whereas what's misunderstood is how anxiety interferes with certain skills. And so, yes, the child's academic skills are the same, but there's now an interference. Now he has less self-regulation. And his executive functioning is now very poor. That's how, you know how we always lose our keys when we're rushing and really late, and you always find your keys when you're on time because executive functioning tanks when you're anxious. Almost every academic task requires that. So it's just a misunderstanding of all these, um, neurologically based issues um, that represent in behavior. And so the more you understand it um, and, you know, we can start to unpack what's going on. But I think the bottom line is I always, you know, tell teachers that there's a reason behind every behavior. And in my opinion, I've never met a kid where the reason is they they woke up that morning deciding to be, a jerk, right? Like I've never, that has never come out in then analysis of mine. mind. There's always really a reason behind the behavior, even though a kid can look you right in the eye and break a pencil after you said, don't hurt, you know, put your pencil down. Um, it's very, it can look very purposeful, but when you understand the impact of anxiety on behavior, um, we can understand that that child lost self-regulation skills in that moment, um, got very inflexible um that's why we got into a power struggle that's why he did the defiant act so i i think it is confusing and truthfully teachers do not get the right training neither do special ed teachers and like we talked about behavior analysts don't get training in in this area either so um like for for example a teacher school right now they would get zero or one courses in behavior management and it's usually called classroom management so it's more general not necessarily learning how to do an SBA or anything like that. And then um, usually zero courses, sometimes one in mental health. Um, and it's usually a survey course, like intro to psych. I think all of us have taken. Um, and that's really it. And then the teacher has a classroom of kids where the rates of anxiety right now are at 31.9% for lifetime prevalence. That's one in three kids. So, um, unfortunately, there's a mismatch in the training and the actual um, class that you're either you end up being prepared to teach. So that um, we're, the best way to handle that is through education. So I do a ton of psychoeducational information every time I'm consulting or obviously presenting. I really like the way
0: in which you talk about the behavior and not the individual. And I like how you called something um a social mistake or um a defiant act. And that's a really nice way to see this educational, behavior analytic, um, neuro neuro um psychology kind of overlap. Um, that we're we're looking at behaviors, we're looking at histories, you're looking at private events, you're looking in educational settings. I mean, I think it also takes somebody with a unique skill set. Um, to go and try to piece all of this together. And thank you for doing a lot of that or starting that. And I want to also give you an opportunity to talk about your books that you've um, published, uh, The Behavior Code and The Behavior Code Companion. And a big part of why I want you to talk about that is because congrats on writing them. But I find them so helpful, so effective, and I've even purchased them for schools that I've consulted to or worked with. And um, thank you so much.
1: I really appreciate you saying that.
0: Yeah. So tell us, tell us more about it, because I, I mean, I feel like you've taken a lot of those areas and then smushed them together in a book where it's almost prescriptive in a way. Um, and so that's one place where people can go. And then, of course, um, tell us more about that. And then where else you think we could go and get more information?
1: Sure. So what I tried to do in the books is sort of walk through what I had learned to do in public school. And anyone who is listening who works in public school, you know it's controlled chaos, right? So like all kinds of things. And what I ended up finding is I had to be an expert in everything, right? So in BC my B C B A training, my specific B C B A training, I learned about kids with low functioning autism or developmental delay, but not so much any other population for whatever reason when I was in school, so then when you're in public school <laughs> you had kids with everything right bipolar disorder kids with um, you know uh, schizophrenia all kinds of things are going on so I I needed to sort of start learning real fast um, about different areas so in the book I have an acronym called Fair um, F A I R and the reason I picked that acronym is because we want to make sure we are doing what's fair to certain kids so a behavior plan that would be super appropriate for a kid with autism may would may not be the fair um thing for someone with more mental health issues that might be a clash in some of the things we're picking so the f is just function and and we look at the, you know um uh, know no listening no all about that and then accommodations that is the list of skills i just mentioned i make sure that I translate what's research-based and clinically um, evidence-based into classroom strategies. So unfortunately, in mental health literature, there's very little that is for the classroom setting. So most of the mental health um, information is theoretical and clinical or meant for a dyad between a therapist and a teacher, and it's, it's difficult to mirror that in a classroom setting. So I've tried to learn to do that and through the accommodation. So what can a teacher do when when a child is losing self regulation skills and getting anxious? And so um, that's doable for her. And then I is is for interaction strategies. And this is something I believe are our group of strategies of accommodations, but they go unsaid and unwritten. So would you agree when you observe in classrooms The kids with mental health issues like anxiety, especially trauma, their success is very person dependent. So since you were in Cambridge, you know that, right? So like the third third grade teacher is so child whispery. That kid has a great year. And then in fourth grade, it's a substitute teacher who's got sort of an inflexible personality. And the kid and the teacher are getting into power struggles constantly. And this can have high stakes now. They're thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe he needs another placement. You know, he's in the office all the time. Um, or in high school, he never gets kicked out of any of his classes except science, constantly getting kicked out of science. So this is the same kid, right? What's going on? So when you observe, um, it's there's these relational skills, and, and the trauma literature supports that, right? It talks a lot about the relationship building is so crucial. But as a behavior analyst, I've learned to have to quantify that. So, for example, um, every – the I section of every behavior plan that I write. And if there is a behavior template that people listening are using, I would love you to consider adding a section called interaction strategies where you actually quantify how to best communicate with this child, um, how to give a direction. The the least likely to go well is to say to a child, do your work now, right? That's like I'm scared for you. That's the least likely to go well if a kid has any oppositional um, behavior repertoire. So I, there's about 11 ways to do that, right? So you could um, write on a sticky note, please stop tapping your pencil, put it on his desk, walk very quickly away from that child. Um, there's a much better way than standing in front of them, standing over them, right? Kids sitting, you're standing, and publicly in front of other kids, say stop pe- tapping your pencil. That's a disaster the sticky note would work much better. Um, giving the reason before the direction is a really quick one that I teach teachers. For example, say a kid spilled crayons. Typically, we would say, can you pick these up? I don't want to fall. So we gave the reason second. But remember, we talked about there's could be this um, perspective-taking distortion, right? They, they, have, uh, they feel like they're being picked on. Different things could be going on. So instead, if you just put the reason first. Oh my gosh, I hope I don't fall on these crayons because I have such a bad knee. Do you mind to please pick these up? That will go so much better because now you're giving them the correct perspective, not that you're picking on them, not that you're, you know, some kids will even say she yelled at me, even though the kid, the teacher was talking in a quiet voice that can happen with kids with trauma. They, you know, perceive things differently. So that would, that would spare you from all that kind of a trauma response to something like that. So there's all these um, ways I try to outline in the book, and I quantify them for teachers. So I used to have a rule that I I would not let myself get frustrated if a teacher and a kid were clashing a little bit unless I wrote out what to do differently, even including how to build a relationship. Like I just wrote on an interaction strategy section recently, greet the child at the door here are his five interests. I didn't even let them figure it out. I said, I know it, so I'll just write it out. Here are his five interests. Greet him at the door um, and ask him about one of these five interests within the first two minutes you see them. It's a very helpful formula, right? So some teachers go up, do that, but some teachers greet the kid at or don't greet the kid at the door at all or greet the kid by saying, where's your homework, right? <laughs> and that's going to lead to you know, it's uh, a problem for kids who – can be prone to negative thinking anyway so um, I think it's really helpful for us to operationalize and quantify those skills I put it in a fidelity checklist um, which you can see in the second book and um, when I consult with teachers I write out like avoid public praise that's another one a lot of kids hate public praise and that's the go-to of teachers so I have to point that out a lot and then I sit with them, and I'll say, how often do you remember to avoid public praise? How often do you remember to give the reason first before you go to How often do you greet them at the door and ask them about it? How, and I go through each one, and they rate themselves. By adding the fidelity checklist, it helps because some of these things are, you know, really habit-based um, behaviors on the part of the teacher, and I find that very helpful. But I don't even, in my presentations, teach strategies until I – over the interaction strategies and um how building relationship is so important but i take a step further by actually telling them like in a quantifiable way how to go about doing that so that's the i section and i find that's been a real game changer for me and then the r in fair so f-a-i-r um is just how to respond and the thing that might be different um in that section um where I find it's more neurobiologically informed and, and anxiety informed is I give reinforcement. Like say, you know, we have a sticker chart in, in elementary school or some sort of token uh, chart or something like that. What I have the emphasis on reinforcing strategies or skill practice. So for teachers, I will ask them. Or I'll challenge them. If you have a behavior goal, social-emotional behavior goal for kids, like complete your work, follow directions, something like that, I would love you to add one to three strategies to go with the goal. Because otherwise, what we default to is just incentivizing kids. So if you complete your work, you get a good grade. And as we all know, that may fall flat because incentives do not teach skills all an incentive does is increase the motivation or, or the or occasion, the likelihood that it will increase, but it does not teach skills. So um, I ask teachers and teams, if you have a behavior, social, emotional goal, please consider adding one to three strategies to go with each goal. And then that's what I reinforce. So for example, I was just in a therapeutic classroom and they hand out therapy bucks. they look like dollars you know uh, or excuse me strategy bucks, and they look like you know a dollar and they hand them out when they catch kids um, using a self-regulation strategy that's been taught you know when I the girl who was picking her skin I talked about earlier we taught her your brain is like a remote control you need to change the channel to calm down so every time we caught her changing the channel she took out her sudoku book before an assignment would give her a strategy you know that's what you want to reinforce um, is the strategies because um that's a more skill building approach than i think we default in public schools to doing sort of an incentive of the behavior but um this is shaping the behavior in a different way where you're teaching skills so that i think is the sort of the biggest sort of shift in emphasis in my behavior plans as well but it's all outlined, <clears throat> excuse me, in the books. And um, and I do have a lot of articles on my website that are free downloads. So my um, last book was published in 2014. So since then, um, you know, I've tackled different kinds of topics. And so I've been doing that through articles um, because I don't want to write another book because I'm a doctoral student. I don't have to. <laughs> so I've been writing articles, which are free downloads for everybody, right on my website, Um, I do blog on the Huffington Post as well, um, and those are right on my website, uh, also free downloads, if that's of help. Um, But they're all classroom-friendly, practical strategies, because I think even um, us as consultants, we need to make sure the suggestion we're making to a teacher is doable. Um, It's maybe unlikely that they can take 15 minutes to have a therapeutic dialogue multiple times a day, even though the research would support that. Um, we want to make it uh, doable, simple, switch, you know, th- you're doing a break, just make, just give her Sudoku instead of that notebook. You're saying, pick up the pencil, just please say it this way, right? Same kind of just easy, small switches that are, are based in and steeped in research um, with this population of kids. And um, that's what I I do, Um because that's what I had to learn to do in public school is I had such stressed out teachers that I was consulting to. And so um, I always reassure them that I was a teacher and that um, these worked for me. And and I've gotten really hesitant teachers to be able to implement the strategies in the book. And I think that's really helpful. We want to make sure we're helping the kids, but by, but in so doing also not overwhelming the teacher. So um, that's the, that's what I'm trying that's what I'm striving to do anyway. Yeah, thank you
0: for again those publications. And I understand after doing my dissertation, I um I never want to write again. Hence the podcast <laughs> and yes. um Facebook, uh, other exactly. social media channels. Yeah, um, you are smart. <laughs> well, you know, learn through experience. Um <laughs> But I, I mean I think that those articles are incredibly crucial. They're small consumable pieces, they can be shared online. The pieces that you do for the Huffington Post, um, you didn't mention it exactly, so I will. But your website is jessicaminahan. dot com, um, M I N A H A N, and I'll also include that when I put out the podcast. I've been able to print off some of those, you know, smaller two page, three page articles, and share with teachers or share with administrators, and they've been like, oh, that's that's exactly the student and. I think you do a really excellent job with your examples, and um, that's one of the benefits of consulting and traveling and speaking is that you get to see probably commonalities and, and patterns, but you can also bring to life what this looks like in a classroom. And my background was in elementary education and then special education too, so I do sometimes forget that behavior analysts may not have that background uh, as our right. feel well, just growing and evolving we're coming mm-hmm. from all different um, histories. I did want to ask you quickly just a question about your travels. You mentioned some really cool places and you were saying that you go throughout the United States, Europe, the Philippines, you're going to the Philippines. Um yes. and Canada. Do you want to mention any of your upcoming events? Um I don't know where our listeners are at, but maybe they'll, they'll be in the area.
1: Sure. Well, I travel and I um probably twice a week right now. Um, But they're not always open to the public. So when it's open to the public, I put it on my website, which I'm cheating and I'm looking right now because, of course, I have no short-term memory anymore because I'm a doctoral student. Okay, let me look. Um, Does your short-term memory come back after you graduate and get your Ph.D., Amanda, or is that a permanent condition I have now?
0: Um, I think around the five-year mark a little bit,
1: but... (laughs) But I'm I'm not sure. I might have to wait another five to see if more comes <laughs> okay. All right. we'll go with that. It's coming back. Um let me see. So I'll be in um New Jersey and Illinois. I'm doing a keynote for the Learning in the Brain Conference, which is a Harvard conference, which is on each coast in Boston and, and San Francisco, California. But I'm I'm gonna be doing a keynote in the California one. That's in Valentine's Day um i'll be in la california great falls montana um and those are all those are all the ones that are coming up um that are open to the public so it'll be super fun to see people come visit nice awesome well i
0: mean again thank you for all the work that you're doing and for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to meet to share to talk Um, Before we end the call today, is there anything else that you'd like to add or to leave our listeners with uh, on this topic?
1: Well, um, first, I want to thank you for having me. Um, I haven't seen you in a long time, so it's nice to catch up as well. And thank you for all you're doing. You really do an amazing job disseminating information to people in a really accessible way, and um, I appreciate that. For teachers and school people listening, um, I know how stressed all of you are. Um, i I never I only consult to stressed out people um, <laughs> because my area of interest is, is working with uh kids with psychiatric profiles. And I I just want to say that there are there is literature out there that's doable. Um small and small changes make a big difference. So even if you just pick one or two small changes that you learn from anyone, um don't overwhelm yourselves, start small. But they actually can make a big difference, even though it sounds very scary when someone has a very horrific trauma history or a mental health disability that seems very overwhelming. Um, there's so much a teacher can do. And I I really want to um, help teachers feel more empowered that even something like negative thinking um, is, is in their wheelhouse to support, um, but with very small changes that they don't have to get overwhelmed in trying. Wonderful message, right? Start
0: small. Um, sometimes I say dream big, but start really, 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 really small. Um and you know <laughs> Really, even,
1: really small. Yeah.
0: <laughs> even smaller. Um you also, you know, touched on this and mentioned this, but when we are working with and um trying to support students who are very stressed out, obviously we're also working with adults and ourselves who are also in those conditions. So I think just kind of hearing you go through the, the FAIR acronym again, and I know we were talking about strategies for public schools, it got me thinking about everyone I could be interacting interacting with who is, you know, kind of in that, um, when we're in those places of high anxiety. So always right. a good point, especially for those of us who are consulting to remember that everybody's stressed out. Yes, <laughs> um,
1: unfortunately.
0: I know we got to work together to figure exactly, it out exactly
1: exactly exactly
0: perfect well thanks again jessica and um, i wish you that safe travels and look forward
1: to talking to you again soon thank you for inviting me it was nice to speak with you no
0: problem for anyone who's interested in more information you can go to com. you can also learn more about these topics at behavior babe www.behaviorbabe.com